What did the buffalo say to his son when he dropped him off at school? I mean, it had to be bison. Bison? Bison. Bison. It's <laughs> a good one. I mean, of course, of course you were going to know what that is. I, to be fair, to be fair, you did tell me to stop randomly on said page and you practically knew exactly what joke <laughs> I was going to say. Yes, I planned this without being there or looking. I just knew. Everything. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to Contagious Curiosity with Cat and Lainey. I'm Lainey. And I'm Cat. And today is going to be, um, it's going to be fun because I know absolutely nothing about what Cat is talking about, and she knows absolutely nothing about what I'm talking about, and it's going to be fun. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a grand old time. What a bash. <laughs> a joshing good show. A regular old jubilee. <laughs> I do. I would say that we did have a, a general theme for this episode, Mm-mm. though. We were, um, we we haven't necessarily come up with a name yet. Really, to be honest with you, the names are really caught up in the last five seconds of uploading, so they really are quite <laughs> candid. Which is my favorite part, actually, about everything. It's just naming the episodes. Um, so glad we're but, doing this so that you can name episodes. Makes everything worth <laughs> it. Is that not? Were we not on the same page about that? <laughs> hey, whatever I can do to make you happy, I'm just happy you're happy. I say that uh, this week, though, we embrace the grim mm. and we bring ourselves down a couple pegs again. Uh, it's called balance, an ebb and flow, if you will. True. And so I thought it would be fun, and Lainey thought it would be fun if we just kind of brought you guys something brand new and something that you might not have known about specific subject or subjects. It depends. I don't know what Lainey has prepared. And, um, of course, drink to it. Absolutely. Cheers. What are you drinking this week? So, mainly because I've, I've personally been craving one, but I also felt that any time that I've ever felt a little macabre or a little a little dark and you know edgar Allan poe-esque i do like to have a martini mm. and i like to make it dirty i like that you have it in a shameful sifter, a sifter as well <laughs> like a brandy it, sifter. it's a it's a it's a brandy sniffer isn't that what they're called sniffer is it sniffer i always thought it was brand maybe i know you sniff it's it brand- but I, I didn't think it was co- i'm gonna shut up now before i make a fool of myself no, 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 no! This is this is okay. This is how this is how we learn because you might be right. <laughs> okay. All right. Three so minutes. We're gonna we're gonna keep recording. To like covertly, tell you to get a little bit closer to your microphone, but instead we just like. You know what's interesting? You know what's interesting is that my sound bars are spiking like crazy oh, maybe okay so maybe it's just our connection or something i don't know which no because my head because i'm talking to you through the beats headset mm. not the actual microphone oh so we should stop because the this. microphones no this works because as long as you can hear me it this You're is right. the only this is the setup <laughs> you can guys. you can you not hear you me hold you on guys. can you not hear me i can 
<laughs> I, but it, it like cuts in and out weirdly. Like it, it just it makes it sound like you've gone like twenty feet away from the microphone every once in a while. But now I understand. Okay, so we were going to like you know just lightly bring up our technical difficulties, but we just blatantly <laughs> put our dick and balls on the table, basically. <laughs> or difficulties. we could just take it out. You know that's up to you and I. We could just take it out. But and now, now I'm kind of enjoying where, where it's going. Anyways, four minutes, guys. It took us four minutes to explain to you how terrible this is going. Oh, my God. This Mainly on my end. It's nothing. It's it's honestly, it's, it's the worst. So I have a slew of computer problems and audio problems and I'm staying in a different town while training for work and they're having internet problems and I'm like there's like this quadfecta of just (laughs) technical difficulties but I've managed to get everything to a specific T but the difference is is that I have to listen I have to look at Lainey on my cell phone because like my laptop won't connect to Mm -hmm. the internet and talk to her on my Beats headset while simultaneously recording on my microphone in front of me but for some reason she's not able to hear me so well oh my god it's fantastic Um, and I love this I'm loving every second of this because if any if quite hilarious now that it's uh, the whole thing when Kat and I started you know just even talking about doing a podcast together we were we were both just like oh god are we even like qualified enough to have anybody listen to what we have to say do we know what we're doing the answer is no but we're doing it anyway and that's the charm and that's what i kept telling cat i was like it's okay it's just part of the charm please just it's okay so hopefully you guys find us charming because fuck this is all we've got this is we we are we are literally thriving and capitalizing on you know the growing pains of like starting a new job sure. you know when you're learning all the stuff and everybody around you seems to know exactly what they're doing and they're looking at you like you should just hurry up and figure it out mm-hmm. but we're just kind of, we're just kind of rolling with it and i think that that's just part of our love for each other and and how and what we exude into the world is that it doesn't matter how silly you look at doing something just do exactly. it exactly i'm so happy we do it anyway it's ridiculous like yeah it, it, at times, is it, like, maybe a little stressful, and do I forget to do some things that I should do? Yeah, absolutely. But it, it, my joy of doing it with you and this whole experience so far outweighs any of, like, those little things that I'm just, I, I you know, I'm just, I'm very happy. I'm very pleased. It's it's a rocky road, but, man, we're, we're fucking trekking it. Bare feet. We're doing it. <laughs> Bare feet. Oh, please. I have my back. <laughs> I went hiking recently, and wasn't that an experience? I did it though. It wasn't just hiking. I want to point I was that out. Say, but it was. It was a lot. It was. Did, it was. You did good work. It was all right. It was good. All right. Regardless, did could you hear me when I was explaining what I was drinking? <laughs> yes, I did hear you. I did. All right. So. Yes. Oh, no, the brandy sniffer. That's what yes. we were talking about. So look it up. Okay. Is it a brandy sniffer or a brandy? What did you call it? Now I don't even. Hold on. I'm looking it up. You called it a brandy uh, sifter. I was right. It's a snifter. Snifter, you're kidding. <laughs> Thank God. Because that cannot possibly woo, be. I was worried that... about myself. 
Oh, and I'm worried for myself. I've been calling it a brandy sniffer for years in front of people. <laughs> maybe, maybe they just every time it's been like this where they're just like, fuck, is it snifter or sniffer? Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just going to Nobody assume. Nobody the has the humility. Yeah. Nobody has the humility to just ask. You know, I was literally shopping with a friend of mine not that long ago and I asked I asked him. I was like, "Well, would you know, do you know what you need to get?" And he's like, "Yeah, but I'm just going to I don't know where it is, so I'm just going to, you know, try and keep searching for it." Like 5 minutes into walking through all these aisles, I was like, "I'm just going to ask somebody." And he's like, "No, no, 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 no." No, I got it. And I'm like, "Just fucking ask." <laughs> just like, just fucking just, just fucking ask somebody. But then I would have but, to talk well, to somebody. And I don't even think it's that there's it's it's people feel shame for not being mega independent like what a what a a sad little thing but regardless Lainey what are you drinking oh I am drinking voodoo ranger juice force IPA I fucking love voodoo ranger like every single thing they've put out I enjoy thoroughly I don't know I just I love it and um if anybody hasn't ever had a voodoo ranger their like logo is always a skeleton and doing something cool and um he's pretty hot i I gotta say he's pretty hot um so yeah that kind of ties into to our morbid fascinations that we're talking about this week so i figured i'm reaching i'm reaching desperately um with this one because it it wasn't planned very well but there's a skeleton so it counts (laughs) You sound like how I sound every week when I'm like, so I pulled Kool-Aid out of my, my cupboard today. (laughs) If you heard that loud crash, that was my ear gauge falling out. So I'm just going to like dip down. (laughs) That, that came out of your ear. That sounded like you dropped a. It it sounded like you dropped a whole ass wrench. Is what it sounded like. Yeah, no, that's just what I I put in my ear holes. (laughs) Wrench. Call it beauty. (laughs) Oh God, no! Though, like every time one pops out, then just like the, you know, decaying smell of flesh like wafts in the air. That is the smell of having ear gauges. And whoever, like decided to fool people by saying that bone and wood and stone make them smell less they're fucking liars it does you, not smell yeah, uh, less <laughs> the body's the body man okay well now that we have derailed ourselves the entire podcast and our lives i don't really know about <laughs> Shall we, I don't uh, really know about derailing per se. Yeah, this is us. This, the, 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 this is us, you guys, and not that corny TV show. Honestly, I, I don't mind it. You know, it's kind of like I said, it's growing pains. Like I'm not gonna sit down and, you know, have like the perfect most insanely perfect environment right off the bat Mm -hmm. to talk about the shit that we talk about because most of the time it's goofy and it's unplanned and it's kind of off off the cuff and it's supposed to be i'm I'm good i'm good with what we have and i like what we have and i like how we're learning i know i've talked to you separately privately about it but um my own mental health stuff it is one of the my biggest problems in life is allowing myself to be vulnerable 
in front of other people. I don't like to talk about emotions or things that I'm going through mentally, emotionally, physically, even sometimes until I have had the chance to completely understand it myself before I'm willing to talk about it with somebody else. It's how I have always been. I hide. I do that whole thing. Like if I'm physically in pain, I will fall asleep. I will go to a dark corner and fall asleep like a dying cat. Like it's what I do. And upon like, you know, intrusive thoughts that just wash upon you as you're trying to fall asleep at night and they keep you awake until 3 a.m. of all the things you said when you were six years old and how you wish you could apologize to your mother and even though you have multiple times you'll never be able to fully apologize enough you know just those awful thoughts and so <laughs> and like I'm the type of person that if I have a little too much to drink I will spend the entire next like week to 18 years um, thinking about the things that I said and wondering if I overshared or if I, you know, made myself act a fool or anything. And so this entire process of this podcast, releasing things where audio isn't great, our information is goofy, <laughs> you know, like whatever, it has been so fucking freeing and being able to let go. This is, it's been an entire exercise of just like, completely rewriting the way that I deal with this kind of stuff and how I put myself out into the world and being okay with people not liking it. And I, I, I've just, it's been a, I can't express enough how hard that that has been in almost every other aspect of my life, except that this has been fun. It has been fun coming up against those struggles, overcoming those fears, and just being like, oh my god, we didn't keep track of the trivia well enough. I didn't, you know, oh my god! And then realizing, oh my god, why the fuck am I stressing over? It's hilarious. <laughs> to be honest, to be honest with you, I think... I, cause I, cause I, I can, I totally respect where you're coming from, and I, and I do try and keep that in mind, because I know that I can be a catalyst for a lot That's of... the thing. I don't give a fuck how you come off. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I know. I'm just saying, like, I'm saying to you that, like, um, I'm... Pr I, I have plenty of reasons to be the cause of your stress in regards mm -mm. to this podcast. Like, a lot of changes. Like, I'm I'm a random person. I, I literally am kind of a wild card when it comes to plans and when it comes to, like, strict schedules that aren't, like necessarily like work schedules um i i i'm a mess of a person and i do not organize my thoughts in that manner and i and i just kind of i just kind of say shit and i just kind of do shit and like all last minute be like i just can't do something and Lainey is super patient and so wonderful with me and she's always been that way to be honest with you she's always been so wonderful Aww. so i do try and keep it in the top of my brain to not do that to you and at least talk to you about certain things exactly. because if anybody else knew me, and if anybody you know anybody out there who knows me personally knows that like i'll i'll be talking to you one second and then i'm gone for about two days mm -hmm. <laughs> you have never done that to me no it's it's well i probably have hey, i probably it just hasn't been in the recent years it, is, it just it's hasn't been, been in a very years. very long time maybe when i was like in california and things were crazy <laughs> but <laughs> it's honestly every like, every it, it's such a relief to have you as a friend every every snail needs a shell and you're my shell yay 
As you poop on your head. Oh, and other things could poop on us. Look at us. It's Have you win, ever seen win. the like diagram of a snail and like where their anus is? It's like right above their head. So they yes, literally just right above their head. Their head. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, leave them alone. Leave them I, alone. I, I, you know, thing. Evolution is a beautiful thing, so it must be for a reason, right? Right? <laughs> we are. Right? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, sure, ask the flatworm. <laughs> Okay, so. <laughs> All right, so do you want to do you want to roll the die and see who goes first? Because I'm going to tell you. So the way that I, because once again, Lydia doesn't have any idea what I'm going to be talking about. And I don't know what she's going to be talking about. I have a one solid topic. Me too. Okay, so we both have an umbrella topic. We both have roughly the same amount of research. Uh, so do you want to roll the die or do you want to do a question like a trivia question? Um, somehow. Oh, no, rock, paper, scissors. It doesn't work. We've tried that multiple times and like, there's just enough of a delay where it doesn't work. Um, because we're both waiting. Well, yeah, because we're also, we're also winners. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) all right. One of my hands is me and another one is you. I'm going to roll them up. You don't know. I'm doing it behind my back. I'm rolling my hands behind my back so you can't see them. Which one is me and which one is you? Pick a hand. Is it the left hand? Is that me? Is that not a serious question? (laughs) No, it is. All right, hold on. One second. Hold on. I'm going to put... Okay. I've got a dime in one hand and a penny in the other. The dime is you. I'm the penny. Okay? Mix them up. Mm-hmm. Mix them oh, there up. we go. I like this one better. I'm gonna mix them up. What, you ain't got You ain't got no VH, VHS back there? No. Mix up. I used Sorry. to do that when you, when you used to put them behind... Well, people put them behind their backs and they're like, this is the movie I'm gonna watch tonight. Yes. I've done that there. so many yeah. times. All right. Okay. Who am I? Mm. Well, pick a hand. Right. My right or your right? Oh, you're right. All right, you go first. I go first. Damn. I don't know if I'm prepared for this. <laughs> I'm prepared. <laughs> okay. So I can't tell if I'm just in a giggly mood or if I'm just really excited about this research. Maybe both. Maybe both. Maybe both because I'm also excited to present this information mainly because it was also interesting to read some of these things. So, I would like to start us off this episode talking about taphophobia. Mm, mm, mm. T-T-A-P-H-E-F-O... Oh my god, of course I already messed up. <laughs> T-A-P-H-E-P-H-O-B-I-A. Taphophobia. <laughs> I won the spelling bee with that one. It's the fear... Overall, is the fear of being buried alive. That's a pretty big fear. Not of mine, mm-hmm. but of other people. It's actually funny. I was um, talking with a friend recently about different kinds of phobias, and I asked him what, um, what is it, the cyanology, uh, cyanophobia, cyanophobia. You remember that one? What is that? Cyanophobia. Oh, was that yeah. the fear of dogs? What was, no, no. It's the fear of dogs. No, where okay, it doesn't yeah. make, it's doesn't the fear of dogs. doesn't sound anything like, yeah. And so I was talking about this research I had done, and I was like, taphophobia. And he's like, fear of taffy? I don't understand. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, it's never what you think. 
Um, for arachnophobia. That one's pretty on the nose. That is that one is right on the nose. Uh, so overall, I'm going to start off by talking about, I think what everybody has more or less heard about. And that is the infamous bell. Saved by about, the bell. That's where that term came from. Actually, actually, no, apparently that came from a boxing. That's a boxing analogy. If the I boxer was about to lose a round, always heard he that would, it was the other way. It, I think, I think it has been used both ways, mm-hmm. but, but, but this is, but this has been going on for so much longer. And the Saved by the Bell was like a pop culture reference, not in Saved by the Bell, but, um, in regards to, I think it was like a boxing movie. I, I, I actually tried to look that up, but I didn't put any of that research in here. I really should have. Um, because of course I should have thought that you would say that. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, it's great. No, it's, it's great actually. But I, but yes, yeah, so. If you guys know if whether or not it actually did originate to the bell ringing or the boxing, let me know. But I'm immediately going to look it up after anyway. So, so but like I, like I was saying, uh, most people wouldn't really give a second thought to a bell ringing. You know, sometimes it's quite releasing, yeah. meditative. Means, you know, somebody, the Pope has died or somebody's getting married. Right. Uh, so in the 19th century, a ringing bell could mean the dead weren't. Somebody unintentionally buried alive could pull the string in a coffin and ring the bell at the top um at the top of the coffin that is actually fed through a tube all the way down and it would either ring a bell or in some patented cases would actually raise a flag like you would on a mailbox i would just like to take a second and say that i'm 100 percent correct twice in this you episode. are yes. twice yeah twice i'm just gonna I, hey i'm able to keep score this time <laughs> Where, what's your source? Um, multiple different... <laughs> Let's see. <Shit>. Phrases.org. <laughs> this is businessinsider.com. Uh, Ginger Software. I don't know how reliable that is. Mirror.com UK. <laughs> Idioms Origins. Do you want me to keep going? Do you want me to keep listing of all of the articles that say I'm correct? Would you like me to keep going? <laughs> I'd like I'd like for you to write them down and put them in a formal email and send them to me because I'm going to check every single one. Oh, good, good. This is the kind of deep-seated research we need. Okay, you have gotten like <laughs> two sentences into your story and I'm already derailing everything. And you're this like, actually, episode, actually? <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh, God. Fuck. Also, if anybody is horrifically annoyed with my laugh i do deeply apologize i know it's abrasive continue no 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 this is good this is good this is good i i will remember everything (laughs) (laughs) uh okay so let's see here uh where was i on my little my little list here okay so originally so the first known case of the ringing bell or the coffin bell or the, um, yeah, there's, yeah, yes, yes. The coffin bell was at a cemetery called Cooper Cemetery. Um, and Cooper Cemetery, the origins of it actually. Let's see here. Sorry. Now I was, I, my, my, my face came away from the computer and I lost my place entirely. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Okay, found it. Found where I'm so supposed sorry. to be. I should, I should, I'm going to highlight it's it next time. Fault. Okay. 
So grave bells were believed to have been used at Cooper Cemetery near Monroe County line on Reinard Mills Road. Okay, there we go. So a pipe would come down through the ground into the coffin and a string would run from the coffin into the outside of the bell. And there would be people who were on like rotating circles uh, to watch the cemetery in case a bell was rung. Usually these are, these are just groundskeepers, people taking care of um, this little cemetery. Um, and without modern technology, people with low pulse rates and breathing rates could be, you know, at more of a risk for being buried alive. So at this point, when this story first originated, this was in the late 18, uh, the late 1800s. And I have, oh my gosh, I'm doing terrible. Why are you doing terrible? I'm doing terrible. It's because I'm I'm trying to look at you. It's all separate. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. Everything's separate. Just remember, okay. we're not being videotaped, so you don't have to make it look like you're looking at me. You can just read. I like to look at you. I know. I like to look at you. Okay. So, plus I also want to make sure you hear me because after all, I'm trying to tell you. So. The story of Cooper Cemetery's bell is circulated for years between nearby residents. The evidence of the bell was reported to be a pipe sticking up from the ground next to one of the headstones in the back left corner of this cemetery. And while the evidence of this pipe is no longer visible, the story definitely lingers in the surrounding town. So according to Miller, Cooper Cemetery was established in 1821 with its first burial of Nancy Pugh. So this woman was buried in 1821, and it's called Cooper Cemetery, which is hilarious to me because nobody else was buried there for 30 years. The next three burials were Alicia Cooper at 60 years old, Mary Cooper, eight years old, and John Cooper, two years old. That's why you have a lot of kids back then. You knew a percentage was going to die. Yeah, well, it seems to me that, like, it looks like definitely two children. What was going on? And Cholera? uh, This was cholera. Yep, and that's about the time because it would have been around eighteen, eighteen. It would have been around eighteen eighty, eighteen eighties. That so. is a real fun experience when you just basically shit yourself to death and become so dehydrated, you die. And so you lost two demographics here. You lost two children and an elderly person. Sixty-one though. At at that at that time, that was. It's uh, not bad, but. Okay, but so Cooper Cemetery's bell has long since disappeared without a trace, but the legacy does continue to live on. Jim Moore, 61, of Little Hawking, used to live near Cooper Cemetery in his youth, and though he hasn't been around the cemetery for years, he still remembers hearing and looking for the bell. So that's kind of the story everybody seems to hear. So that is, I've, I've looked around and I found a lot of stories and there are certain ones, if you're trying to look for this type of topic, or you're just interested in, in, in reading about it, or just kind of feeling a little macabre and you want to just feel dark, you know, um, you're going to definitely see that one all mm-hmm. around everywhere. And so going back into a little bit of the history throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, a variety of repulsive stimuli were applied to corpses to ensure that they were definitely dead. Now, Lainey, what are some of the stimuli that you think that people did to corpses in order to make sure that they were dead? Uh, There was the smoke enema where that's Mm -hmm. where the term blowing smoke up your ass comes from because it's literally like you light tobacco and, and, and blow smoke up a corpse's ass. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, there's the, the tongue twerking machine. Yep. That that guy did. For, it worked. 
It, that's the craziest thing about the tongue twerking thing, though, is the woman that he, the very first person he did it to, and I don't know why, he put the hand in the mouth and just started doing, like, moving her tongue around her mouth for three hours straight, and she woke up. I don't was think he, it was he all ever by himself ever again, but I don't know that for a fact, but I doubt it did. Oh, God, it's so crazy. Do you think he was, do you think he was by himself? I don't know. There's a lot of things like old timey doctors were basically like serial killers that had victims given to them. It was insane. Oh, I know. Old timey doctors. I like that. Honestly, that's actually, you know, like 12 BC to, you know, 1800s. It's old timey. To the sepia, to to the sepia, 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 the color. Sepia, the color. <laughs> Old timey. Old timey. So, uh, okay, I got what, all right. two. So you got the to smoke enemas. You got the the uh, the tongue twisty thing. Okay, go ahead. Um, I don't know. Just straight up poking them. Sort of red hot pokers. Oh, there. is it in the butt? Yeah. I don't know if we should be talking about this so gleefully. <laughs> I'm excited. I can't. I know. It's I'm a terrible, <laughs> weird shit. <laughs> I, I, I just realized, I like, no, you were doing this. No, this it's so. No, 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 it's. So, I have in my brain. That's no. That's wonderful. This is. That's why I. I thought I knew you'd love the topic, but like, we're just so excited to talk about it that. I realize that from an outside perspective, we're like, and what's Wait. next, lady? Red hot pokers in the ass. <laughs> you know what? If you can't get excited about red hot pokers in the ass, you shouldn't be here. You should not be here. Yeah. Hopefully my audio is not blasting you guys in the ears, but oh, I should be able to fix that because I definitely feel like I'm yelling. Oh, I'm probably yelling at this point. It's hard to tell. I got headphones on. I got noise-canceling headphones on, so I can't really ever tell, like, the volume of my voice. And I'm already a loud person. So this is... This is good. Tobacco smoke animals. Yes. Pokers in the bottom. Mm. Uh, the tongue twist. Mm. Continue. I think that's all I... That's all I got. Unless I'm just taking because other stabs things, in the dark. No. So you were very correct about three. And I feel like if you just started listing off other types of torture, then I'd be like, you've thought about this. Yeah, you got it. Um, but the ones that were recorded, the ones that were recorded and at least proven and documented uh, were um, the twists. So the tongue twist. Um, urine mouthwashing and scenting. Tobacco smoke enemas. Nipple pinching, body pinching, genital pinching, like uh, sensitive areas. Uh, ho- pokers in the hindquarters is is specifically the phrase. I kept that in there. I did not. I did not put my own phrasing. Yeah, I put that in there. Um, and so it wasn't until 1846 that a French physician, Eugene Bouchot, 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 I don't know. Proposed that the newly invented stethoscope should be used to determine whether or not a heart had stopped beeping. You know, it's almost so beeping. simple, it's stupid. Beeping. Like it's. But believe it or not, most... they didn't actually accept it. I uh, oh, oh. They did not accept it. Um, he was shot down, so it was done for. Um, so that did not take 
into effect during that time. People still did it, but it depend. It wasn't necessarily like a standard practice, and you could just you could just be dead and or done, you know. And, and well, like like what we're about to talk about, you could just be buried alive and then be discovered years and years and years later in one way or another, and realize that this person is, was trying to scratch and claw yeah. their way out and. It's quite horrific when you think about it. So, um, but it only what happened poet, a little, like a couple times, didn't it? No. So it happened. It happened quite frequently, but it was only documented uh, more like within the past like two hundred mm-hmm. years. So it it has to have been you know it just has to have happened. People were buried all the time, but most a lot of people were just buried in the ground without a coffin in some ways. So I feel like that would be worse because then you just suffocate if you woke up did you are you going to talk about hans christian and christian anderson at all no okay so real quick he was so terrified he had this phobia of being buried alive that in his will he has he it's like um that they had to cut his veins like slit his wrists and veins to make sure that he was dead before they buried him like to be 100 percent sure I actually do have some stories of of uh, of, a, of a man um, in here uh, that, and I believe it was based on a story, which so might have been based off of that. Hans Christian um, Anderson, he's the guy who wrote uh, The Little Mermaid, and a bunch. Of I know who it is. Oh, okay. Oh, I know. Well, maybe the people who are listening don't. Cat. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, hmm. my bad. My bad. My <laughs> <laughs> be. My be. So well. What when you think about it? When you think about poetry, uh, who might have wrote about Poe? Fear of being buried alive. So we're gonna have to go to Poe. So Edgar Allan Poe's stories. A lot of them did have a lot of like exploitation of fear, you know, and kind of the introduction of like feeling uncomfortable and like like how Gabe from the Office uh, is in love with. Cinema of the unsettling, yeah, where you, you know, watch it to, like that or kind of like thing. Read it or experience it to be unsettled. Yeah. So, speaking of what you were just saying, uh, Poe was absolutely terrified of being buried alive. So much so that he wrote his own story about his own fear called "The Premature Burial." It's a short story first published in 1844, where the narrator himself describes the struggle with things such as attacks of the singular disorder, which physicians have agreed to term catalepsy, an actual medical condition characterized by a death-like trance and a rigidity to the body. The story focuses on the narrator's fear of being buried alive and the corrective action he takes to prevent it. He makes friends promise that they're not going to bury him prematurely. He does not stay away from his home for very long and builds a tomb with equipment allowing him to signal for help in case he should be buried alive and only to wake from one of these episodes. So Poe describes how the narrator remodeled the tomb. And this is how somebody, this is in in, in his own way, this is how he would want to feel comfortable. And it says... The slightest pressure upon a long lever that extended far into the tomb would cause the iron portal to fly back. There are arrangements also for the free admission of air and light and convenient receptacles for food and water within immediate reach of the coffin intended for my reception. The coffin was warmly and softly padded and was provided with a lid fashioned upon the principle of a vault door. With the addition of strings so that the contri- so contrived with the additions of springs 
springs so contrived that even the feeblest movement of the body would suffi- would be sufficient enough to set it at liberty. So it would just launch a flag and, you know, in its own way, he'd be free. Besides all this, there was suspended from the roof of the tomb a large bell on the rope of which was designed so that it, it extended through the hole in the coffin and be fastened to one of the hands of the corpse. So you have all these signaling things and you have ways to survive and also an immediate alarm. So... The reality of the premature burial story has existed long as, as long as humanity. In biblical times, people were wrapped in shrouds and their bodies placed in caves after they died so nobody would easily check on them, or so somebody could easily check on them, and a few days later make sure that they were actually dead. Which, you know, the idea of like a shroud burial is actually still quite... I mean, people still... That's how, that's how people are entombed, aren't they? In, in a shroud? In shrouds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a shroud. Yeah. Like mummies? So... Yeah, yes, in a way, but yeah. So the fear, though, however, yeah, it's been around forever. I mean, nobody wants to be buried alive, but the fear or that phobia uh, didn't really start taking off until about more recently. The earliest recorded instances of this specific type of fear um, that could be found and recorded dates back to the 1600s. In her will, Princess Elizabeth of Orleans requested her body not be shrouded for 24 hours after she died and she would be cut with a razor. Yeah. I, I mean, so that is, that was requested. I feel like that's not a difficult task, though. You know, I, it, I, especially if I knew somebody close to me was this terrified of being buried alive. I'd be like, fuck yeah, slice her. Come on, slice her up. Make sure. Mm. Let's well, honestly, you could sure. just solve the whole just solve the whole problem here with a cremation. I, yeah, I well, I mean, that's even worse. They were still alive, <laughs> and you're just cremating them instead of burying them, which to me well, is the worst thing that you could have said. Well, they I, woke up, didn't I'm they? Not worried at all about being buried alive, being burned completely, being now burned well, least... alive while asleep is. Now... <laughs> top biggest fears i don't know some of these situations seem really um really specific like medically specific to like something you know that literally made them seem dead enough yeah so i wouldn't say it just happens obviously that often or you know if hear me out so hear me out so well well so Regardless, so going back to the 1600s there, and we're talking about the earlier times that it's at least been recorded, there's a popular legend in the town of Bassington, uh, Bassing, Bassingstoke, Bassingstoke in England, that tells of a woman named Alice Blunden, and back in 1974, oh my god. Okay, I'm turning my head now. I'm turning my head. Okay, so I'm going to start that over again. So in in Bassingstoke, England, a woman named Alice Blunden in 1674, a little dyslexia there, my apologies, um, tells of Alice drinking poppy water and passing out, appearing dead. She was pronounced dead by a doctor who then used the mirror method, where you hold up the mirror to a person's nose to see if it fogs up from their breath. And two days later... Um, after she was buried, children playing nearby started to hear a voice from the local cemetery. So they told their school headmaster, who absolutely didn't believe them at first. But the next day, he went to the grave and heard the voice himself. So later that day, Alice was exhumed. She was found alive, but battered and close to death. So she left the grave, and the guard was sent to watch it. 
Oh, sorry. She was left in the grave and the guard was sent to watch it. They left her there, but in the grave. So just not packed back on, just left her in the coffin. Wait, so she's been exhumed, like she's out and free, but they just left her in the coffin? <laughs> so, yes. So she was found alive, yeah. but battered and close yeah. to death. She was left in the grave and the guard was sent to watch it. But it rained that night because she was pretty much like passed out. She was sick. She really needed fucking medical yeah. attention. So after that night, it rained and the guard decided to go home and would just come back later. And when he came back, the coffin was opened the next day and Alice was found dead. So the co- they put the coffin lid on her too? Yeah. So this is the story that is told throughout that town. What? Yes. So, the guard didn't seem to face any consequences from everything that I could find. I found a story in a couple places. Um, there was no consequences. Nothing happened. Um, the doctor was put on trial for his role in the death, however, because he pronounced her dead. And But he was acquitted because of his mirror method um, being considered legitimate at the time. Because oh, no so stethoscope she was, was used. she was considered dead. She was considered dead. And anything else that happened after that was just a horrible inconvenience or just, yeah, malfeasance about it. But so now this is the story I was, uh, I was kind of implying earlier that is more modern, a little bit more recent in regards to, um, why? Oh no, no, I'm not. Why am I? I would never talk to you about it. I was talking to Jason about it (laughs) right as I was setting things up. So, okay. This is the story. I'm sitting here like I'm like, I'm talking to him. Um, okay. So in 1937, a 19 year old from France named Angelo Hayes went for a motorcycle ride. Perhaps he had minimal knowledge of how to operate such a vehicle, but he ended up crashing it and slamming headfirst into a brick wall. Okay. Right. So when help arrived, they found Hayes and his head was mangled and he had absolutely no pulse. He literally looked so terrible that his parents were kept from seeing him for their own good. And he was declared dead and buried three days later. So due to an investigation by the insurance company itself, the body of Angelo Hayes was exhumed two days after the funeral. So he was completely knocked out for a total of five days, buried for two. Everybody was completely surprised when it seemed as if he was still warm. (laughs) Apparently, in the aftermath of the accident, his body itself, like, put itself into a deep coma that required very little oxygen to upkeep the system. See, like, very specific medical medical stuff here. So, after being buried alive, Hayes received proper medical care and went on to make a miraculous recovery, which then, uh, inspired him to invent a type of security coffin that he toured across France equipped with a chemical toilet and a radio transmitter. He actually became quite a celebrity because you can find a ton of information about this guy. And he performed for TV audiences from six feet under. Damn. Oh, he performed. No, he performed uh, for a TV audience from six feet under, not for six feet under the show. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I was thinking, I was like, that, that, I was like, this man, this man was like, this is in the 30s. But yeah, wait a minute. Um, so yeah, it's, that makes me think of Arrested Development, Job's coffin trick. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself in this coffin like my dead father. Father's dead? Buster. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> So, the fear of premature burials took the most revolting form, though, 
in Germany between 1790 and 1860, when local governments constructed a total of 50 Leichenhauser, or waiting mortuaries of decaying corpses, reeking of purification. Mm. They were just terrified of the idea of being buried alive. So they, like, they, like, they stored them. Yeah. They stored them. Yeah. Ugh. So the undead were expected to ring a bell upon regaining consciousness. So. Whew. Germany. Yeah. But, you know, I suppose they, they were being conscientious of the, of the, of the what, what's a reasonable concern. So. Okay, so we're going to go on to another story. This is another recounting. Uh, Octavius Smith Hatcher, 1891. What a name, huh? That is very good. Octavia Hatcher. So she lived in the city of Pikeville, Kentucky. And after her infant son died in 1891, Octavia was bedridden with depression and slipped into a coma, which I didn't realize was a thing. I always thought that that was like a, like going into a depression coma. Oh, yeah. I see what you, yeah. Yeah. But regardless, this is the information. On May 2nd, she was pronounced dead from unknown causes. Embalming wasn't an option at that time, and because it was an unusually hot summer, Octavia was buried quickly. However, many other townspeople appeared to be struck with a similar sickness that caused them to fall into a coma, and eventually they would just wake up. Ah. So Octavia's husband... James began to fear literally the worst. And I feel like I would too. That's, that's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of paranoia and, and regret. And you, you gotta know, you gotta know. And so he exhumed his wife's coffin. He discovered that his fears were true. Mm. And the lining of the coffin had been scratched and torn to absolute pieces. And the glass on top of it, you know, where they used to have the little viewing windows. Oh, yep, 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 yep. Yep. The the glass on top of it was smashed and scattered over Octavia's body. Her nails were bloodied and broken, and her face was twisted with terror. Oh, how it was described. I don't like that. Octavia was reburied. I love it, but I don't like that. (laughs) Imagine being the husband and. You just see this. You see this. Oh my god, I can't even. I I could not find how long she was actually buried for. I could not find when they when they exhumed her and when like compared to when she was buried. So I'm assuming if she I'm assuming it had to have been weeks. It had to have been weeks. Because if she fell into a coma petrification and started at this point too. And it's just it's a whole uh, messy soup of gross and horror. Imagine living that way in in like just the slow death, the slow death. Like actually like not you you don't even you don't even have a head injury. You were just sick and then you woke up. Like yeah. a lot of other people, it seems like in a lot of these stories, they died relatively quickly or they were down there for a reason. She just got sick yeah, and just slipped and unbelievable. But all right. So hear me out. So after all of this happened, she was reburied and James erected a lifelike monument over her grave, which still stands today. He reportedly developed a severe phobia himself of being buried alive. Yeah, yeah, that would do it. Yeah. Right. So, and another case. Illinois publishing and media heir Stephen Small was kidnapped at gunpoint and buried alive a meter underground in a wooden box in 1987. His kidnappers, Danny Edwards and Nancy Reich, asked his family for $1 million in ransom, which they did intend to pay. Various phone calls to the family were garbled and unclear, meaning that the police kind of had, like, nothing to work on. Like, it was very poorly executed. You know, they just kidnapped this guy, and it's just a couple It's just a couple of hats, really, not knowing what they needed to do. 
Uh, so police located Small's maroon Mercedes near the site where uh, he was buried. So like they knew that he was hopefully around there somewhere and discovered like a super, super grisly scene. And though Edwards and Reesh provided Small with an oxygen tube, a gallon of water, a torch, candy bars and gum, he ended up suffocating after his breathing tube tube failed and the other two were sentenced to a like were to life in prison never never to see the light of the day so yeah it's rough so that was a more that was a more recent tale but that was really just like it's actually i saw years ago it was like a ryan reynolds movie about being buried alive i think it was literally called called buried Buried or (laughs) yeah i remember it's like one of those one of those the single single shot the one man shows the one man shows the yeah, whole just like, um, movie is just like a camera facing towards, like you know, up at him as he's buried. It's like 127 hours, Ooh. you know. But I, and which is which is a heavy movie. But the I, but the buried alive really hits me home. So, um, whew, so okay, moving on. And now let's take it back a little bit. In 1571, the wife of one of the magistrates of Cologne. Uh, Sorry, I had a complete spell. Like, I, I, I have a duplicate sentence here. Okay, to take that apart. Okay, so in 1571, the wife of one of the magistrates of Cologne um, was buried with a valuable ring on one of her fingers. The grave digger, uh, the grave digger next night opened the grave in order to take it off, but may have readily supposed or may have realized that it was too small and... When the supposed dead body... Oh my gosh, I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't fix this one. I'm all off on that one. My bad. So, okay. The moral of the story. The moral of the story is she was buried with a valuable ring. Somebody went to go take it. I See, that's when I had... That's what happens when I try and read it versus just telling the story. Um, tried to take it off of her finger. Realized that she was starting to swell and couldn't... And he just decided not to take it off. So in order to get it out of the coffin, he decided to cut it off entirely. And during this period of time, she woke up. He pushed her back in to the grave and kept her sealed underground where her husband then came back days later to retrieve the ring because he had the same concern and discovered her grisly dead, like mangled body and like a finger like cut off. And she was obviously moving around and still alive in in said situation. So um, he never fully recovered from that. So, and the story is no, you just don't, you just don't. And so that story is actually, and I think the reason why it's so, it's so messy. And I forgot about that whole little paragraph is because I meant to actually include it in the next section, which I talk about a specific book called the premature burial and how it may be prevented. So you got this. Let's talk about, right. Let's talk about this book. So it was written by William Tebb, a member of the Royal Academy of Medical Sciences and a doctor named Colonel Edward Perry Vollum. It was published in 1896 the same year that Teb co-founded the London Association for Pre- for Prevention of Premature Burial. This is a whole thing. Like a whole yeah. a whole coalition. Shit. Um, and it is basically what it sounds like. 
It lists reported instances of premature burial and ways to prevent it from happening. Uh, Teb and Volum wrote things like cremation and avoiding hasty burials were great ways to prevent it, of course. I and don't it also get mentioned that. the no, mirror. I'm sorry. How is cremation a better way? That's just ensuring they're dead and because then they at don't least wake they don't. Up later. That's all that's well, doing. Of course, is just ensuring they don't wake up later. That does not well, ensure technically... that they are dead <laughs> well, that, this is that's, that's, it is just the beginning of what they talk about but they say technically it is the prevention of premature burial because they're dead that's insane <laughs> it technically is it technically is Ooh, you can write a strongly worded letter I'm, to their ancestors I am. i'm gonna i'm gonna chew them out so but they did mention the mirror technique and said it wasn't reliable because there are always instances where a person may be temporarily uh, unavailable to breathe or they stop breathing or they're not actually dead and the breath is too weak and it's technique it's it's ridiculous and it also lists methods of prevention which include things such as injecting substances into the skin mm-hmm. shock artificial respiration um or oscillation um and which involves listening to the heart and lungs for signs of life so you know you know was actually using a stethoscope. Um, the blister test, putting boiling water onto the person's skin to see if it blisters. Oh so apparently, apparently, if you put boiling water or you put anything hot on a dead person's skin, it does not blister. Oh, I, that's that that's true? what it says in the book. This is a real book. You could. This is a book that you can buy too. So premature to, burial. <laughs> premature burial and how it may be pre- prevented was generally well liked. Uh, but there were doctors who definitely criticized it, saying sensationalized premature burial um, was not the way to go, and it just made people more anxious. <laughs> what did it just made people more anxious, and so they were they 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 were literally creating a, a public hysteria. And other people say um, that it didn't mention anything notable about medicine or uh, physiology. So. One of his predecessors, in particular, had even a darker idea. In 1859, a Dr. Von Rozier conducted an experiment to see if people could really survive several days being buried alive. And at some accounts, he and at some accounts, he claimed, uh, and he has claimed successfully having done it. He buried several rats and mice alive in a coffin ah, yes. and dug it back up after days. The exact same right? thing. And as it turns out. The animals survived by eating each other. Ah, there you Surprise. go. Yeah. Although, uh, he isn't sure how they got air. <laughs> so, Dr. Rozier tried lungs. the same thing with a... Giant s- box. If you're b- getting a big enough box for multiple of them to fit in, it's not going to be the same yeah. as it is for one mouse or rat. So there's extra oxygen compared to the lung size. Is just my completely uneducated and off-the-cuff guess. Well, you're going to be really upset because oh, no. his last test um, was with a singular dog who died in three hours. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Yep. But the last bit of it, a little bit of, a little bit of, um, you know, peace of mind. Uh, let's just say it happens. And against all odds, you were falsely declared, declared dead, requested not to be embalmed, and woke up in a box six feet under. How could you possibly escape in time? Well, there are a couple tips that I could give you to kind of finish out this whole thing to help you survive a premature burial. Thank you. So if you're in a metal coffin, which apparently isn't a modern thing, but these are tips. I'd like to be buried like a sardine, please. Thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> sealed too, like crimped. The edges, the edges are crimped. And yes, I want the pull tab. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're buried in a metal coffin, this the joke is you know there's not much you can do there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Other than scream your heart out, scream your heart out, and oh, put but the acoustics. No, and, and, Oof. and put your lips against the coffin, and, and scream and scream and scream and scream. <laughs> if you can find anything hard in your pockets, use that to tap SOS signals on the coffin lid. You could try that. Uh, you know, by the way, SOS is you tap three quick taps, three slow taps, three more quick taps. So practice every day because you never. That's know. what you want. As you never know. So if you're in a wooden coffin, however, your chances are slightly higher, ever so slightly, not a lot slightly. Uh, You have to find where the coffin's boards combine and then place, it's a place that is the most likely to break. It's just in those weakest, the weakest spots. You're going to take your shirt off to the point that it covers your neck. So you're just going to kind of cover your neck and you're going to break through the coffin and let the dirt flow underneath you as you continue to widen the hole and once you've made a big enough opening you start moving up and using your shirt to cover your head and like this for the for like a like an oxygen oh, bubble okay. and so you're not breathing in a lot of dirt and you kind of displace the soil oh okay and you push it you push it into the coffin so you take little bits you push it into the coffin you and you stuff it and you stuff it and you stuff it as much as you can and if you if you're capable of course uh, of doing this um, because the idea is that the, the dirt will first yeah so once you've made a big enough opening, you start moving up and use your shirt over your head as the bubble. And then once you've wriggled up enough, you can break out into the surface. Obviously, if you're not physically capable of doing something like this, I mean, if you're a young, spry pup, you know, maybe this sounds realistic, but I think even I would not be able to do something like this. So, oh, I'm because sure even I if you break panic. it, full blown panic. But attack. the idea, just but the idea is that the soil is loose, and so it's still loose. There's still, like, it's not like you're digging, like, a gopher through hard-packed soil. Mm-hmm. So there's still hope. And that's why people tend to hear, or there are a lot of stories of people who have heard people after they've been buried. It's because that soil is not compacted and tight yet. It's not, the the earth, the earth still has so much settling to do. So, honestly, you know, I suppose it's not ideal, and it's honestly one of my biggest fears because my yes but one of my biggest fears is actually like either like being trapped in a like in a dark cave uh like underground or and i know this is completely unrelistic because i would never do this but like you know when you go like spelunking into caves i I was just about to ask about that yeah so yeah so you're diving down and then you even go underwater and then you go through all these tight little crevices like what it's so what if, it just, if it just my brother my sister-in-law and i did that in california in northern california we went to uh the mines and we like you know like, oh jesus fucking elbowed the microphone god damn i'm so sorry <laughs> you know come down on a rope it was like 160 feet it's just like a hole in the ground there's a shack built over a hole in the ground and you harness up and you rappel down, and at the very bottom, there's like a mound. I cannot. I'm. I'm gonna sound like an idiot, so I'm not even gonna try. Either the stalactite or the stalagmite, the one that comes up from the ground. It's that one. And there's a bunch of animal bones, and there's even a kneecap of at least what was like a human ancestor. And just, uh, there's oh, a saber neat. tooth, like, you can see the actual tooth, and that's how they know coming up from the ground, because, pe- like, things and creatures and 
stuff fell through that crack in the earth and they fell all the way down into this giant cavern. And then we went down further after, because that was just like the opening, the welcome to the caves, here you are, like <laughs> rebelling 160 feet. And then you go further into the caves into complete darkness, which is utter darkness, which is the, the only other place you can get that is miles under the sea into complete absolute darkness. And um, how how far down there, is it? I, I can't remember. It's like at least two hundred feet. And the people that work there, when they get trained, they have to go in and they have to turn their headlamps off and they have to like find ways out in order. You know, like they're watched and there are people there, but they have to like maneuver in complete darkness. And eventually, your brain starts making things up and you start hallucinating because it can't handle nothing. The nothingness. Well, that's the idea of like the handle. those sensory deprivation yeah. chambers. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that the idea of that? And so there was one. I I ha, I have insane claustrophobia, and so I definitely took an Ativan before going on this on this trip. I'm really surprised that you did. A lot easier because there was something called the pancake. That was a part like a a part of rocks that you had to get through where you have to lay flat on your back. And you use the tips of your fingers <gasps> and the tips of your toes to wiggle yourself on your back for about like 10 to 15 feet, which is a lot further than you think. Stop. When you are. That's what I'm talking completely about. Sandwiched That's literally between what? two huge, like 200 feet of earth above you and you are just pancaking your way <laughs> oh my god i would By assume the end, i would assume you had there was like thick this girl like me that you had to like that you could climb up to like slide down this rock face to get to the base where you could climb the stairs back up out of out of the hole in the earth and my knees completely gave out like i tried to climb up the chimney and my knees didn't let me it, they just shook so much that I fell from it. And I was just like, okay, no, I'm taking the pussy way out. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> Gotta go this way. Sorry, guys. Oh, it was did they, did Did your brother and sis, did your brother yes, and his, yeah, and his they wife, did. did they do and it? And it was really cool to watch them slide down because it, it looked really awesome. And I'm so happy they did. But my body. A thick girl like me could not have done that, right? I, somebody like with like my chunk we, i couldn't do that right like that that little pancake there's there's gotta be do they test you before you go in there to see if you could actually get through to it be completely honest i don't think so it was so tight that's what i'm it saying it was so they must, they, tight they have to they didn't measure you or anything like that no yeah you like you get okay i think they do it like be, to like, be like we gotta measure you for your harness size but also like where are you gonna go? Are you gonna yeah. make it through the pancake? Yeah. Where are we gonna bring you? Sounds <laughs> 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 like an asshole, but I mean, it's tiny. It's okay. You know what? There you, are so many, only that. so many inches. It's fucking rock. It's, it's, nobody made this. And it could just fall down and crush you at any, any second. Yeah. Extreme. At least be a quick death. It was great. It was that was like uh it was beautiful. And so, so that is what got you more than the darkness. Oh, the darkness doesn't bother me so much. It was absolutely yeah, the, the claustrophobia. So like, I had to psych myself up for that so much. I watched a, like a twelve-year-old boy do it, and I was like, "Okay, I, I can do this. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. I'll be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. 
I'm so oh, livid. So bad. I I made like I wanted to go first before Sean and Katie to make sure that somebody because uh, he's like you know able to would be able to reach in and grab and pull me out. And yeah, yeah that's fair enough. How old were you? Like twenty four. <laughs> Don't be ashamed. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I'm 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 34 and I'm not doing that shit. <laughs> All right, so what are you what are you presenting to me? You probably oh. do a lot better than I did. To be oh. honest with you, I don't care how much I mess up. I, I don't like reading from a paper, anyways. Well, I like scripts. Is what I do. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Yeah, this is the Whitechapel Club, and I got um. I feel like I definitely need to cite my sources on this because they were just so important to everything that <laughs> is what I'm about oh, to tell I d- you. I do have all my sources written down as well. So I have everything here. All right. Well, I got the Whitechapel Club defining Chicago's newspaperman in the 1890s. Spoiler, everybody. By Dr. Larry Lawrence. An article written by Rebecca Burgess Abramovich in ChicagoMag.com. Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, and of course, Wikipedia, because it provides everything. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> the Whitechapel Club was a secretive society and elitist Chicago press club founded in 1889 by like minded newspaper journalists that had rather dark and morbid fascinations. If you didn't know what you were walking into, the inside of the Whitechapel Club looked more like a horror novel come to life or like a trophy room for murderers rather than a clubhouse. The walls were canary yellow, decorated with used nooses, knives that had been used to kill, pictures of pirates before and after they were beheaded, Native American blankets soaked in blood, and plenty more. Skulls lay just about everywhere you turned. They were used as goblets to hold tobacco, as ghastly lampshades that were fixed with colorful glass in their eye sockets, or a simple decoration. And to top it all off, there was a life-size mannequin of the president of the club, Jack the Ripper. I will go much further into detail about what the inside of the clubhouse looked like quite a bit later on. So the men, (laughs) I gotta tell you, I looked in a lot of places... They do not list, like, the straight-out names of the founders. This shit is secretive. And because of what everything was like in the 1890s and just, like, how things worked, there's just not a whole lot of actual documentation because they didn't have cell phones to take pictures and videos of every little thing that happened. So things actually stayed in the clubhouse. The men who founded the Whitechapel Club were all Chicago journalists that had, along with the police force, saw the very worst of what humanity can do to itself in order to tell their stories. All of these men witnessed and wrote about murder, suicide, overdose, abuse, squalor, death, disease, and much more. Their lives and minds were already filled to the brim with the macabre and unfortunate. The club became a way for them to bond over their shared experiences of depravity and also to cope with it. The first press club was started in New York in 1872, which became a blueprint for other clubs that popped up all over the country. Similar to Whitechapel, these clubs were difficult to get into and rather elitist, but unlike the Whitechapel Club, they were stuffy, 
uptight and taken extremely seriously. The Whitechapel boys wanted a way to unwind and learn to laugh in the face of horror, while many of the other clubs focused on the ever-growing popularity of American professionalism. Now, some of our true crime fanatic listeners might already know the grisly and murderous undertones the name signifies. For others, it might maybe ring a bell, but more than likely, most of you are thinking, what is so dark about the name Whitechapel? And for that answer, we look to none other than the big bad granddaddy of true crime himself, Jack the Ripper. I was going to say, it's definitely, because there's Whitechapel, mm-hmm. there's Whitechapel in, yeah. Exactly. And because they're, because of the, the Whitechapel murders. Yep, exactly. For is, those of you is who that what may this not is? know, Jack the Ripper was an unidentified serial killer active in the impoverished districts in and around Whitechapel, which is in the east end of London in 1888. So, Jack is still always highly talked about to this day, more than 130 years later, because of just how depraved and vicious the murders of and corpse mutilations were. His unknown identity is why Jack lives on as one of the most famous serial killers in history. But it has to be... Quick interjection. Hmm. Quick interjection. Yes. Isn't, 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 the, isn't the fable or the idea that was H.H. H. Holmes is Jack the so, Ripper? I actually do talk about this and because it's a script oh, perfect. I'm read through it anyway but yeah okay no, he's, sorry yeah for show for show you read your script read your script girl read your script <laughs> <laughs> right. i'm fascinated though sorry i'm just no, like please yes go, go. No, i love it um yeah i i so personally i believe that there was more than one killer i do i mm. think it was more than one but especially it's like uh like American Horror With Story, like, uh, well, yes, or there's that, or I'm talking about uh, James Patrick. Bunch. Oh my god! Oh, I love him. How all those murders? There were like all those, all those serial killers that he quote unquote trained. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. killed under the, under that the same guise of his lessons, and it's kind of all one guy, one legend. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I right, I need yeah, to rewatch continue. that season. All right. <laughs> anyway. His yes, un- you do. <laughs> oh, he's perfect. The little mustache. Oh, oh. I had everything about him in that <laughs> role. so good. Evan Peters, the love of my life. But specifically, James Patrick. Anyway. <laughs> no one will hear you scream. His unknown okay, identity continue. is why Jack lives on as one of the most famous serial killers in history. But it has to be noted that the culture and physical settings of Whitechapel also help shape the story. Much like how the cultural and physical settings of Chicago help shape the creation of the Whitechapel Club. Poverty, prostitution, disease, crime, and death were just about everywhere you looked in Whitechapel. Jack and his depravity had ample opportunity to attack in the darkness and slink back into the shadows, largely thanks to the fact that his five canonical victims were all prostitutes. Because the women lived, quote, high-risk lifestyles, it placed them in the category that is often referred to as the less dead, meaning that they often don't receive the same kind of attention and urgency that people of more prominent backgrounds get when they are missing or murdered. However, which still happens. Oh my god, yeah, no, the list is Yeah. Every day. It's horrific. It's awful. All right. Uh, however, little did the founders of the Whitechapel Club know at the time they were sharing their city with someone who was even more dangerous than Jack. Uh, 
and who, over time, has even been speculated to have been Jack the Ripper himself. Can you guess who it is? Oh, it's H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> Can you guess? <laughs> it has been proven that. that there's no way that Holmes has anything to do with the Whitechapel murders. They're just the timelines don't match up whatsoever with uh, what he is known to be doing at the time. Um, it's been proven that there's nothing new, blah, 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 blah. but that doesn't stop him from being one of the biggest boogeymen in, boogeymen in history. In an ironic twist of fate, the Chicago Whitechapel Club disbanded the exact same year that H. H. Holmes and his murder castle were discovered in 1894. And honestly, who knows? Maybe the president might have been changed if they knew like from jack the ripper they totally could have changed it to aj holmes because I mean, he was right there in their own city it's insane that yeah that's crazy it is fascinating i almost feel bad for them in a weird way i don't like i don't know how to explain it but the, the fact that they <laughs> they weren't able to like revel together in the fact that they shared a city with a horrific serial killer is just and like that was their whole thing. That was their shtick. That was their shtick. Yeah, that was, exactly. That was their shtick. It's weird. I don't know. He really is though. Like honestly, if if none of you have looked into H.H. H. Holmes, you really should. He is a fascinating character um, from history, and not just only as a serial killer, but like just recognizing his place in history at that time where he was in Chicago downtown in the 18 like late 1800s it was just a perfect time for him to get away with what he did and it's yeah it's really great yeah, if you the, if you want to learn the atmosphere was perfect him, I highly highly suggest the book The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson it is so good. And um, last podcast on the left also does an incredible series on him that you really won't be sorry that you listened to it or read it. it they're both fantastic. I love it. All right. So <clears throat> I'm a nerd and I like history and I like going and explaining things. So here we go. Before going further into the story of the Whitechapel Club, I want to give a brief description of what Chicago was like in the 19th century. Just to set the tone. Oh, give it to me. Yep, Paint it. Paint it. So Chicago in the late 1800s was a kind of social experience that rivals few others. It was a time of massive change, an insane population boom, technological growth, and of course, dark and dangerous mayhem just about everywhere you step foot. People who are way more qualified than myself say that Chicago grew more quickly in the second half of the 19th century than any large city in the modern history of the Western world. They just fucking rocket shot just out of nowhere. Pff, huge population just boom. Building Everything. boom and population yeah. boom. Construction boom. That's probably That does make a lot of sense because if you walk through Chicago, so much of it looks so similar. And yet when you walk through a town like Portland, Maine, where we're, like where we were from, um, all the buildings look so entirely different. Like they've all been thrown up at different and various places and half the city burned down at this time. So this half of the city looks entirely different. You go from one street I mean, to another and no building you looks do the remember same. remember the, uh, the great Chicago fire, right? That, like, that, that never happened. Fake oh, news. Fake, oh, fake news. Oh, oh. 
Oh, well, that is going to largely <laughs> impair what I talk about later. <laughs> actually, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, I'm actually slightly ashamed because I forgot about, for a moment, I forgot about exactly the time period you were setting and painting for me and forgot all about the fire. So I am ashamed. Continue. Continue. <clears throat> At this time, it was considered, albeit briefly, to be one of the major cities of the world, ranking around fifth or sixth biggest in the world with architects like Fl- <laughs> flank nope frank lloyd wright doing their best to keep up with the ever-growing popularity he wanted people to be instantly awed by the beauty of the built city as soon as they stepped foot off the train and there were a lot of new people stepping off the train every single day in the late 1890s alone, its population increased by 600,000. And in 1900, there were 1.7 million people living within the city limits. 1900. 1900. Think about that time period. Would you want to be living amongst 1.7 million people? Throwing I'm... shit out my window? No. Yeah, that's why you have a parasol. <laughs> why you have a parasol. <laughs> oh, the, the thought of it is horrific to me. With this population and economic boom, we see what we always see. Extreme wealth and equality with each newly added person. The shockingly rich and the dirt poor, all living within a few blocks of each, each other, each trying to navigate a world that the other exists in. Their world's and experiences often come in within close proximity, but never really overlap. Chicago was chosen as the host city for the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, often referred to as the World's Fair. Other cities yeah. like St. Louis, New York City, and Washington, D.C. were fucking furious that Chicago had beaten them. But what it came down to was transportation and money. Go figure! Yep. Because Chicago was a railroad center and they promised a guaranteed offer of $10 million, Chicago became victorious in the race to host the fair. The World's Fair's main purpose was meant to be a celebration of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival to the New World, but it was way much more in reality. From the very first meeting the architects had, it was clear that the most important thing to them was to outdo Paris's 1889 Exposition Universelle at every turn. Which is where, uh, that's actually where the Eiffel Tower was first unveiled, was the Exposition Universelle. Which is pretty awesome. But, uh, Chicago went bigger. And, uh... Their dream was to have Chicago's World Fair be bigger, louder, and more impressive than Chicago's ever dreamed of being. Which they miraculously fucking pulled off. Even though just about everything that could go wrong did go wrong into open. Actually when I hear when I hear about the World's Fair and I hear and I see pictures and stories, oftentimes it's of the Chicago World's Fair. Because there's always a bunch of them. But like insane what they pulled off. Yeah. What a time to be alive. so it was the first time electricity was shown yep. in the United States. So the exposition covered 690 acres. I'm going to say that again. Oh, my God. 690 acres. Huge. 
How long did it go on for? A couple months. The, what a it time! Took what a time to be alive to build up to it. So uh, I was flipping actually through, in preparation for this episode, um, the uh, wow, Devil in the White City, which I can't see. Third time I'm mentioning and recommending this book. I'm telling you, you got to read it. It's fantastic. So one of the architects that they got to be like leading the show was 21 years old, and he was living in San Francisco. And they were like, we need you to come and do this. And he was like, I can't. I don't want to fucking leave San Francisco. I don't want to go to Chicago. I don't want to build this fair. I don't want to be in charge of all of this. It's all a losing battle. Absolutely not. What I'm going to do is I am going to make my price so unbelievably high that there's no way that they're going to accept it. And so one of the, like, lead architects for the thing goes out to San Francisco, visits him, and he's like, all right, you know, we've given you a couple months. What's your asking offer? He asked for $50,000, $1,000 a week, which was the exact same price as what the president got paid at the time. So he thought it was so outrageous that he was going to be pre- paid a presidential wage that they were not going to offer them offer him the job they offered him the job and the guy who was out there to give it to him was just like oh that's it oh we can do that you're you're 21 and like just getting started hope you're good because we're gonna give it to you and he he fucking did it like (laughs) it's insane what happened here i i it Really, it it sounds so contrite and like, who cares about a world's fair? You should, because this is how America got built. Like, things like this, the introduction of electricity to our country happened at this fair. Like, mm, it's insane. And I love it. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. No, we could, we could, we could have a whole episode just on that, on the, on the fair alone. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, much. I think happened. that's a great idea. So it featured nearly 200 new, but deliberately, deliberately temporary buildings that were man. There were man-made canals and lagoons, and people and cultures from 46 different countries were showcased. Have you ever heard about human zoos? Yes. Yeah, it's real sad. It's real fucked up. So, um. They're exactly what they sound like if you haven't heard about them. And it's... It's what I'm talking about when I politely say showcase cultures. I'm talking about they brought people from, you know, their homelands to Chicago to put them on show for people. It's... uh, It it is exactly what it sounds like. It's not good. It's not good. So roughly 30 years before the fair opened, African pygmies were, quote-unquote, discovered by explorers, and some were definitely brought to Chicago for the fair. There's actually uh, this this one man, Odabenga. Um, We should do an entire episode on him because it's fascinating and horrific. Um, he was he was an attraction actually at the St. Louis Fair, after the Chicago Fair, and then lived out the rest of his life at the Bronx Zoo. It's horrifically depressing, oh. as is most of history, though. It's bad. As is most of history. Bad. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> anyway, 
So more than 27 million people attended the exposition during its six-month run. This It took years for this fucking fair to happen. So just imagine the absolute squalor that other people are living in in Chicago. And they are just watching all of this being put up. An entire new city within their own city being created with money that you don't even know where it's coming from. And it it's insane. I couldn't imagine what that must feel like. And yeah, um, its scale and grandeur far exceeded the other world's fairs that up until that point, and it became a symbol of the emerging American exceptionalism, which is the belief that America is inherently better than any other countries. USA. 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 <laughs> so one of the most... Like I said, impressive things displayed was the electricity, and it actually, um, it was demonstrated at the Paris Expedition, but it was completely unfamiliar to Americans, so for Americans, this was the first time they had seen it. Oh, this was it. This was it, yeah. And it was a very dramatic act. Uh, when President Grover Cleveland pushed the button on a ceremonial platform, turning on the elex- electricity for the exposition, exposition, like that's how they opened it. Was just like, boom, in your face, electricity. Yep. You never seen this before. Shining lights. It's crazy to think about. And so, actually, because it's, of you know, it's like- even harder to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's even harder to think about an entire city in darkness. Mm-hmm. Like oil lit lamps and shit. Blubber. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just an entire. Imagine. Yeah, dude. It's scary. So, due to all of the white stucco on the sides of the buildings and the white lights shining from the electricity, the pop up city that was the fair and then eventually Chicago itself began to be known as the White City. And that's where the term comes from. So, <clears throat> isn't it also the Windy City? Yes, it is. And it mm-hmm. is a windy fucking city. It really is. The wind just just shoots right through those buildings and those and those roadways. <laughs> they just it shoots right through. Right, so at this it's like point, like a goddamn bullet. At this point, I completely understand why you are asking why the fuck is she talking about Chicago's World Fair? Like this doesn't have anything to do with the macabre or anything. Like who cares? Well, the answer is, I the fucks cares. <laughs> I cares. I like the history. Did you, can I, I mean, no, 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 no. Did you write it out that way? What? I the fucks cares? Did you, or are you just saying just that saying off, that. like, off? Oh, I thought, I, I'm imagining you reading that <laughs> and having in that moment, I and why does she care? Like, I going care. back. Like, you're sitting there typing, and you're just going back and forth with yourself, and you're like, this is it. This is fucking magic. This is the shit. This is what the people like. This is what they want. It's not what they want. Turns out it's not what they want. I'm alright with it. I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'm, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll you take think it. I wrote out, eyes the fucks cares? Think, think better of me. Lainey. Please. Lainey. What do you mean? That's the best I could possibly think of you. You're because because it's it's comedy gold because you're just like I need to be prepared I'm gonna have it all Say right it. now you literally <laughs> oh so good <laughs> all right go 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 I'm interested I'm interested in what you got to say yeah I'm sure I've said it before but 
knowing the history of something and knowing the roots is like way better to understanding what you're learning. I don't know. I I personally right. You feel wait, that when way. you connect to it's it, like when you connect killers. to if it, you really want to know why they do their shit. If you want to know where they come from, like you gotta go back to their roots. You gotta go back. You gotta know where this stuff was bred from. Or just working, working my last job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you the foundation of how something like the White Chapel Club came to be formed. Underst- oh, I know. Yeah, I know. yeah. So, like, understand. You're talking to me or them? Life in Chicago was like <laughs> in the 1890s. Is a clearer understanding of how these respectable men came to form such of course. a dark and weird social club. All right, mm. so <clears throat> back we go with economic. So yes, was the was the World's Fair going on while all this was happening? So this was closer to the end, but yes. Like, okay, okay. Right still around though, still. the end. Oh gosh, now I lost my position. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> Sorry, don't do that. Okay. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. So the economic growth and the privilege disparity, the journalists of Chicago were able to see the hypocrisy of the time through a lens that few others had. So without further ado, I do want to get into the Whitechapel Club. Now that I've gone a, a bit into the history of what life was like in Chicago. It's I, we're definitely doing an episode on World's Fair. <laughs> All right, so a press club is an organization for journalists and others who are professionally engaged in the critique and production of news. The very first press club that I spoke of earlier, founded in 1872 in New York City, was described as, quote, an organization for mutual help, sympathy, and culture. Eight years later, Chicago newspapermen, quote, recognizing the advantages of closer personal relations to raise the standards of professionalism, end quote, established the Press Club of Chicago and settled themselves themselves in what was described as comfortable and handsome quarters. Oh. <laughs> Very fancy. People distinguished in literature, in music, and on the stage are received in a manner befitting the brilliant band of journalists who, by their talents and enterprise, have created the unrivaled Chicago newspapers. The Whitechapel Club took the basic and rather stuffy outline of what the press club usually looks like and completely turned it on its head, making it something totally unique, alluring, and viewed by most as sinister. As previously stated, the Whitechapel Club was founded in 1889 by a small group of Chicago newspapermen, and even though at its core it was a press club, the club members included artists, musicians, physicians, lawyers, and even police captain John Bonafield, as well as fringe members of society like magicians, psychics, and even convicted murderers. <laughs> Other- I like how those three are somehow piled together. Yeah, oh, <laughs> psychics, magicians, and murderers. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, they are the magicians. Fringe. You gotta worry they about fringe. they are the fringe members, <laughs> the magicians. 
<laughs> I love magicians. I love I love magicians. I love magic tricks. You great. Love them. Anyways. So other than journalists, only two men of each profession could belong to the club at the same time. And women were strictly forbidden from being members or attending any meetings. Well, that is all but one. We'll get to her pretty soon, but a little bit later. The club members would meet in the rear room of Henry Coster's Chicago Newspaper District Saloon, where meetings were always held at midnight. Members entered their club rooms through a heavy oak door that opened into the alley. The door was decorated with an elaborate wrought iron scroll work and a pane of stained glass with a skull and crossbones with the legend, quote, I too have li- lived in Arcady. Arcady being an idealist- idealistic rustic paradise. And what a paradise it was. But only <laughs> to the members. Chicago reporters often lived in a dark and macabre world in order to report the news, and the Whitechapel Club reflected these preoccupations and mocked them. Also called the Suicide Club, the group's motto commanded members to, quote, laugh in the face of death. They were also frustrated by the social, economic, and political conservatism of most of the city's newspapers. The Whitechapel boys could debate those questions loudly and at length, vent their cynicism, and try to come to some acceptance of the contradictions that they saw around them. Or simply, relax, drink, and enjoy the camaraderie. So a belly dancer known as Omene is the best I can, honestly, I'm definitely pronouncing it wrong. It's O-M-E-N-E, but I'm going by Omene. Omen. So a belly omen? dancer. Omen? Mm, omen? Omen. That's what I'm saying. There's an E at the end. Omen? Just, just. Omen? 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 Oh, I don't know. Whatever. Anyways. Omen? A belly dancer no, <laughs> known as Omen entered the club. Two and more times. Two, two more times. Woman ever <laughs> allowed through its door. Did an interview in 1893 and said, quote, it was, in fact, a regular chamber of horrors, far worse indeed than anything I have ever witnessed before. There was nothing else but skulls and bones and coffins. Diablo! She described the furniture built from coffins, goblets created from severed human skulls, gaslit fixtures made from human bone, and a mysterious urn presented to her as a gift that held the remains of a man. The walls were decorated with pistols and knives that had been all used for murder, all donated by local law officers. The bloody slipper of a Chinese merchant killed by a streetcar was nailed to the wall, donated by the uh, the San Francisco police force. Nearby hung a blood-stained shirt taken from the body of a Native American killed in the Battle of Wounded Knee. Pieces of fire engines destroyed in Chicago's Great Fire of 1871 were on display. It was rumored that the boot of a soldier soldier from Custer's battle was prominently displayed on a mantle. The bones were still inside. So, Dr. John C. Spray, who acted as superintendent of a local asylum, donated his collection of patients' skulls to the Whitechapel Collection. He would study the skulls of people with mental health disorders to see if they were 
if there was a distinction in bone growth compared to a normal person's skull. The club decor the <laughs> the club's decorator, handyman, and chaplain, Christostom Tombstone Thompson. That's stop fucking, it. Yeah, it's, it's a name. It's a name. That's a fantastic name. <laughs> he was the one that sawed off the tops of the skulls and added the glass to the eye holes to create the succession of gaslighting fixtures for the quarters. The goblets were fashioned from the skulls of local prostitutes. A special cup reserved for guests consisted of a skull lined entirely with silver, originally belonging to Waterfront Jane, Queen of the Sands, a well-known figure of the local red light district. The Sands, or Sandlots, a red light district just north of where Chicago River empties into Lake Michigan, was a favorite stopping place for sailors off the schooners that they once tied up at the city docks. These decorations served as symbols of the often dark world the members covered in their mocking posture as they that they assumed towards it. Quick question. Yes. So professionals were donating body parts. Mm-hmm. And different varieties Weapons, of things evidence, to these guys. Yep. So w- almost was all inside of them the ha- were coming from either people that were in the military, people that are currently serving in law enforcement, people that are like the guy who is the uh, director of the asylum. I'm not director, but but how were they presented? Was it a messy house or was it was in the this, clubhouse? Was like, in the clubhouse? yeah. Oh no, 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 no. It was it was bohemian macabre so it was you know like think of a really like a top tier bohemian house you know with like the the right i can you know what i'm saying yeah exactly i know what you're saying but i know what you're saying okay dark okay i'm gonna look this up after oh please do it's very fascinating in one room there was a table made out of coffin Members would put their heels upon the top of the coffin, lean their chairs back, and sing loudly into the night. Others, quote, kept time to their own dreadful singing by hammering with their beer mugs on top. They held board meetings at the table and dealt poker on it, though absolutely never for money. Because, quote, playing cards and dice for money was strictly forbidden, is what Wallace Rice remembered. But rolling dice for drinks was totally fair game. Nice, nice. Absolutely. Because they thought that, like, ha- bringing money and making that involved was going to... Bring other people in, the undesirables, just, like, into their organization. make organ- actual conflict, and they didn't want conflict at right. all. That was the very last thing they remembered. Well, they would want. I mean, I don't know where remembered came from. Anyway. <laughs> also atop the coffin table was, oh, you guessed it, yet another skull. Its top, though, was still attached. It had been the head of a young Native American girl, and it was among the souvenirs Chicago Herald reporter Charlie Seymour had brought back from the West. At least two other Sioux Native American skulls were part of the decorations, both donated to the club by Captain Stewart. So because, I mean, unfortunately, Jack the Ripper was never in attendance, meetings would be chaired by the vice president. 
Club meetings were very private, although guests were very occasionally brought in. During meetings, people would tell stories, jokes, poems, or monologues, and quite often sing. It was customary to yell insults at whoever rose to speak to the club. It was a favorite tradition oh. known as the chestnut roast. Isn't that just oh, adorable? Oh my god. <laughs> I That's love it. That's amazing. The chestnut roast. So cute. Throughout the meetings, members would smoke and drink heavily. And I do mean heavily. The Whitechapel's stated goals of, quote, social reform was somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Charles Dennis recalled its real mission was to promote good fellowship amongst its members, quote, with good liquor on the table and a good song ringing in clear. Or more bluntly, in the words of longtime editor Willis Abbott, quote, the business of the organization was steady and serious drinking and newspaper gossip. And the club provided all of those in any of the first two or three after midnight hours of any night. I love it. I love it so much. That sounds, oh, it sounds great. So its members sat in a cloud of pipe smoke, feet, feet up on a coffin table, talking, jeering, making fun of each other. It sounds great. They rehashed stories they had coveted, they had covered, and they criticized each other's work to such an extent that members often wrote their stories hoping for a Whitechapel critique. They talked about books and authors. The young Rudyard Kipling was a favorite, for he too had been a newspaperman and had made a reality out of his literary ambitions. More often than not, their talk turned to criticism of the present, the pretenses of Victorian society and they would be remembered by some as quote chronic kickers of the human family but the but they also enjoyed more mundane diversions of the era in summers they fielded baseball teams picnic together and occasionally would jump on a train and visit other clubs in different cities in later years of the club's existence membership became very coveted even more than when it was first created in order to become a member, a candidate had to go through an initiation. The club's prime qualifications were, quote, wit and good fellowship. And three members had to vouch that a candidate offered both. As I previously stated, two members of any profession could not belong to the club at the same time. Oh, that's interesting. Only two members. Yeah. It's the Yeah. Other than journalism, of course. Ba, 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 ba. Totally lost my place. Uh, the new member, known as the probationary member, would go to club meetings for one month. At any time during that month, another member could reject him from the, becoming a member. If the first month was survived, a club-wide vote would be made and whether to keep or reject the man. If one vote was no, he would not be permitted membership to the club. Brant uh, Brand Whitlock at the time, the politician, political correspondent for the Chicago Herald, remembered that a candidate was required to come to the meeting five nights a week for a month. Five nights a week for a month. That's a lot. While his name was pinned to the bulletin board, any member who disagreed with the potential membership could just take the name off and the person would not, would be denied membership. That's all it took. Wow. Yeah. 
just one person. Whitlock recalled the fate of the Whitechapel Club. Quote, But the prosperity and fame of the club led to its end. Rich and important men of Chicago sought membership. Some were admitted, then more, and as a result, the club lost its bohemian character and finally disbanded. Because of how secretive the club was and how rumors spread, there are many stories related to the Whitechapel Club that are not able to be verified. However, remember when I mentioned uh, that that woman, the the belly dancer that was permitted to the Whitechapel yeah. Club, and she was given the urn of human remains? Yeah, mm-hmm. that unlikely story is one of the very few that is actually proven to be true. In fact, the cremation of Morris Allen Collins on a public pyre um, constituted one of the only other times that the organization's activities were actively reported to the public. Before shooting himself in the head, Collins, who served as the president of the Dallas, Texas Suicide Club, offered his body to the Whitechapel Club for a ritualistic cremation. Whitechapel members enthusiastically accept enthusiastically accepted the op- opportunity and constructed a 20 by 18 foot pyre of driftwood and cordwood on a dune in the desolate region region outside Chicago city limits. Oh my god. Yep. Yep. The members draped Colin's body with a white robe and set him on fire, lit their torches. Oh, he was alive? Oh, no no no, he shot himself in the head. Oh, he shot himself. That's was, right. That's right. Yeah. Oh my. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Of course, he committed suicide. He was the president of the suicide club. He was the president of the suicide club. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, they lit their torches and marched three times around the burning pyre. Songs and speeches lasted until morning light, and in the years after Colin's cremation, many Whitechapel ceremonies incorporated the tradition of members sifting their hands through his ashes. The belly dancer, uh, oh, oh man, oh many, I'm so sorry, <laughs> was among several honored guests who were presented with urns containing some of Colin's ashes because she did that good of a job belly dancing for them. And that is the Whitechapel Club. We did it. That's actually fucking fascinating. That's really good. You know, I'm actually really surprised that there's no movies or anything. Like, there's nothing. It is very shocking. Pop culture. Yeah. Isn't it? Seems like a good story to tell. Seems like it's been enough time. Hell, there are movies now being made like three months after people have done things. Exactly. Or like the month after. No. Yeah. No, it's definitely an air. That's the that's the hard part. Is that where did you first hear about this? A whole lot of like, there is some definitive proof but there's not a whole lot of it because it was so secretive it was a secretive society in many ways and they did their best to keep that hidden some members ended up keeping souvenirs and then and then wrote pieces in newspapers because a lot of them were journalists and wrote different things here and there and editors or people who are bosses of people who were in the club would write things it's crazy but yeah where did you first find out about this or where did where did it inspire you or how were you inspired by this where did i learn about the white chapel club 
I have a whole list of things on my phone of things I want to talk about on this podcast. And it's it was one of them that I had listed. I honestly don't remember. Well, we should we should add a couple more right now. We definitely need to talk more about phobias. Mm, we can yes. probably make a game out of it. We could probably make a game out of it. I really, yes. what I want to do, um, actually, is make like copies of the conspiracy game that I have because I would love to play that mm. for the podcast. The conspira- conspiracy board game is a gift onto humanity. And I was losing horrifically, and then in one round, won an entire game by myself in one entire round because I have way too much knowledge of conspiracy theories living inside my it's, brain. That doesn't mean I believe them. Has, I just know about them. There's definitely a fascinating amount of things in that game, in that box. It's quite mm. fascinating. So, it is quite fascinating. Yeah, we should, we should definitely... Uh, more fun things like that well uh i'm gonna be, i know exactly what i'm gonna be looking up when i get off of this because i want to see some pictures and plus i also want to look at the world's fair yes just again definitely so or maybe there's gotta be something it's there's gotta be something that i can watch when you look at the world's fair now it is so uh, the chicago world's fair it is so easy to be like who cares it's just a ferris wheel this is the first time a fucking ferris wheel is being shown. It's the first time electricity is being was shown it? to American citizens. Like, look was at the first your Ferris light. wheel at the Chicago. At, was was that the first Ferris wheel? Yeah. Was it really? It's crazy, man. It's beautiful, and we should be thankful every fucking day for the technology we have because it's shit like that. I don't know that got some of the brilliant most brilliant minds of like the east coast and west coast together and created this amazing fair to just help further our entire society and you should for the progress of humanity exactly you should respect it damn it damn it <laughs> <laughs> all right well ladies and gentlemen it's almost at Almost uh, at two hours. It's time to go to bed. Yeah, man. What do you say? If it's and it, and on the other side, if it's ten a.m. for you, have a good day at work. <laughs> Whatever time it is for you. Whatever Enjoy time. Enjoy it. I would always love if you could comment or or you know follow us on Instagram because then you can tell us exactly what time it is. We should just make that a mm. thing. What time is it? What time is it? Just tell us what. Just tell us. Just tell us what time. <laughs> time is it for you, you uh, right now? That you message. What time is it? What time is it? <laughs> we love you so much thank you so much for listening it it really does mean the entire world to us and if you don't already you can check us out on instagram at cat and laney that's k-a-t-a-n-d-l-a-n-e-y or you can email us at contagiouscuriositypod at gmail.com we would love to hear from you yeah and if you need to find any other links just Go to the Instagram. We're never on Facebook. Don't ask. It's not a thing. <laughs> maybe I maybe, keep maybe, asking Cat to like do something with our Twitter, and she's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it." Nothing has happened. <laughs> Nothing's happened yet. <laughs> but don't worry. When I get out there. But when it does happen, watch out. <laughs> you better just watch out. <laughs> 
All right, we love you all so much. Thank you. Thank love you. Love you guys. Thank here. you. Is that a goodbye? I, Did we I say was goodbye? waiting for you to say something, <laughs> but I guess that's it. You always say cheers. Well, cheers. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to paste that. <laughs> we love you guys. Cheers. Cheers. All right, no, let's do it. Let's let's wait. Let's wait ten seconds, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll pop it in. Let's you wait won't. ten seconds, and the people who are listening right now know that you're not editing this. <laughs> That's not true. It's not that bad. If you say so. Christ. Cheers. I I am I am saying it, but I don't Cheers. know if I'm believing it. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. 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 Bye. Cheers. Love you. No, this is not this is the, okay. All right, enough of this. All right, take up take ten seconds. Yes, thank you guys. Thank you so much. Cheers. Have a Cheers. wonderful evening, day, or whatever time you're in. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.